welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Morning everyone, I hope you're having a great week. Uh, now it is officially past the shortest day, we can only expect that summer is on its way, right? So I'm um, pretty happy about that. Now today on the podcast, we have Dr. Mark Matson, who has been described before as the godfather of intermittent fasting. Mark Matson, now retired, was the chief of the Laboratory of Neurosciences at the National Institute of Aging in Baltimore, where he researched ways to put aging-related disease on hold using cutting-edge technologies aimed at understanding brain aging and the development of neurodegenerative disorders, which is where his whole research interest in intermittent fasting began. He was specifically interested in discovering whether calorie restriction could help avoid brain injury and disease. And Dr. Matson was also a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at John Hopkins University. He has a number of publications which we discuss in the interview that you're just about to listen to. And I start by asking Mark all about his earlier days in his research and how he came across intermittent fasting. Because Mark was interested in it decades before intermittent fasting became popular. He was studying mouse models to understand how the brain adapts to the challenges like fasting and exercise. So that's where Mark and I begin our conversation and him and his research teams have shown that fasting can improve cognitive function and metabolic health. Mark's research in intermittent fasting was sort of the the backbone to the now popular 5-2 approach to diets, which is the approach I have in my Fat Loss for Women and my Man Plan Fat Loss Plans that you'll find over on my website. So not only do we talk about that there, we talk about what breaks a fast, because there are a number of different theories on that. We talk about what do we really know about the benefits of fasting and how much we can take from the, the rodent models being applicable to us as humans. We talk about autophagy and what it is, how long we might need to fast in order to reap the benefits of autophagy and how autophagy from fasting sits with autophagy from things like drinking coffee or exercise, which are also autophagy enhancing behaviors. We also talk about intermittent fasting for cancer research, which is super interesting. So those of you who are super interested in getting geeky on you know, the origins of this research and some practical tips will really enjoy this conversation with Mark. Now, he's sitting outside. It was a lovely spring day for him. So you will hear some background noise probably with that. Uh, so apologies for that. But, you know, I was just so thrilled that Mark took the time to sit with me and chat to me about his research in this space, which, you know, we're learning more and more about. So without delay, here is my conversation with Mark Manson. Good morning, Professor Mark Matson. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join me today. Uh, and I'm super excited to chat to you because I've been aware of your work for a number of years now as intermittent fasting has become sort of popularized in first initially in some of the, I suppose, uh, less conventional approaches to nutrition, but it's certainly moved 
mainstream. And as I understand it, you were one of the, you know, you've been called the godfather of intermittent fasting in some places that I've listened to. So I'm really excited to get your expertise today. I'm looking forward to it. Now, can we kick off, Mark, by getting you to sort of describe how, how you got into the field of intermittent fasting? So where, where did you kind of your interest originally lie? Ha, originally. <laughs> originally neuroendocrinology and my PhD work was studying a neuroendocrine system that controls molting in crabs. And then um, after that, uh, more basic neuroscience, trying to understand mechanisms that control the growth of nerve cells and formation of synapses during brain development. And as part of that, I discovered that glutamate, which is an amino acid, but it's also a neurotransmitter. In fact, it's the most abundant neurotransmitter in the brain. I found that it plays an important role in uh, determining where and how many synapses form in the brain during development. Uh, glutamate excites neurons, so it, it causes them to fire action potentials. And high levels of glutamate can excite neurons to death. Mm -hmm. And so just in studying cultured neurons from the brains of rats, embryonic rats, I found, and another lab had found already actually, that glutamate can kill neurons through this process of excitotoxicity. And then I got interested in cell death and aging. And one of my early findings uh, after I started my own lab was that the amyloid beta peptide protein, which accumulates in the brain in Alzheimer's disease and forms plaques, the amyloid beta peptide can make neurons exquisitely sensitive to excitotoxicity. That is to say, even normal levels of excitatory activity in neural circuits can ca cause degeneration in the presence of the amyloid. Mm. Okay, so I'm getting to intermittent fasting pretty quickly now. Yeah, yeah. This is interesting stuff. Uh, aging is a major risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So it makes sense that in order to really understand Alzheimer's disease and understand why people don't develop the neural degeneration, typically till they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, one has to understand what's going on in the brain during normal aging. And uh, other labs, including um, an investigator at the National Institute on Aging, Don Ingram had shown that either daily calorie restriction or every other day fasting, it's actually food deprivation. Uh, fasting implies, implies the individual has a choice. Mm. In the laboratory studies, they don't have a choice. Yeah. So if we uh, deprive them of food for 24 hours every other day, so 24 hours no food, the next day they can eat as much as they want, next day no food, if that started when they're young, they can live up to 50% longer than control animals that uh, have food every day. Mm. So uh, in the late 1990s, we had some animal models that are relevant to Alzheimer's disease as well as Parkinson's disease and stroke. 
And we found if we maintained rats or mice on this every other day fasting uh, eating pattern, that neurons were more resistant to becoming dysfunctional and degenerating, and the animals had better outcomes in terms of cognition, that is learning and memory, and the Alzheimer's disease model, um, control of body movements, in the Parkinson's, actually as well as the, the stroke models. And then the next step was to begin to try to understand what's going on at the cellular molecular level to explain these neuroprotective effects of intermittent fasting. And over about two decades, the general picture that it's emerged our chickens are clacking. <laughs> so I can't even can you hear, hear them. them. No, I can't. Okay, <laughs> I can hear them. Um, right. So there's well, there's many things that happen, but four changes that occur occur with intermittent fasting we, that we think account at least in part for the beneficial effects on the brain with regard to the aging and resistance to disease. Um, one is enhancement of intrinsic antioxidant defenses. Mm -hmm. And we found that the intermittent fasting upregulates, that mean in, means increases the amounts of certain antioxidant enzymes, such as heme oxygenase and um, another one called NQO1. Okay, mm -hmm. a second effect of the intermittent fasting is to enhance the ability of cells to remove molecular garbage. Mm -hmm. It's a process called autophagy. And also that same general mechanism is important for removing dysfunctional mitochondria. The next thing I'm gonna talk about is focused on mitochondria, but mitochondria are the main place in a cell that free radicals are produced mm. during the burning of oxygen sorry, burning of glucose, an mm. uh, electron transport chain. Right, and one of the antioxidant enzymes upregulated is called SOD2, yeah. superoxide dismutase 2, which is in the mitochondria, and it's, it deals with the initial free radical, it's called superoxide, that's generated in the mitochondria and gets rid of that. So intermittent fasting increases SOD2 levels. Okay, then another effect of the intermittent fasting, which is really interesting, is in relation to exercise. Mm. Well, all, all of these are interesting in relation to exercise. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the intermittent fasting stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis, which is production of new mitochondria. The mitochondria can divide in two and then grow in size. And um, that's very interesting because that process was discovered by physiologists studying muscle cells, mm. and they showed that exercise, and mainly it's been studied with aerobic exercise, will increase the number of mitochondria in individual muscle cells. And mm. intuitively, that makes a lot of sense and can explain in part at least the, the enhancement of endurance and performance with exercise. And then the fourth mechanism that it's most relevant to the brain, maybe exclusively, or at least to the nervous system, is that we found that the intermittent fasting 
affects the balance between glutamate, which is the major excitatory, really the, the excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, and a neurotransmitter called GABA, mm. which is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter. And so I mentioned excitotoxicity early on. The, the first publication we had with intermittent fasting was that we found it suppressed epileptic seizures and protected neurons from dying from epileptic seizures in a, in a rat model of epilepsy. Mm. We found by recording with electrodes that we can put, it gets a little complicated, but for these studies what we did is we, we put mice on either every other day fasting or ad libitum feeding control eating pattern for a month. Then we removed their brains, took out a region of the brain called the hippocampus, which is it's critical for learning and memory. It's a focus of epileptic seizures in many cases, and it's been heavily studied in terms of the circuitry. We cut the hippocampus into thin slices, like a half of a millimeter thick. By we, I'm Whenever I say we, I mean someone in my lab. Yeah. In this case, it was Young uh, Lu, a postdoc. So he put an electrode in one of the glutamatergic neurons in the hippocampus, and he recorded the release of GABA, the inhibitory neurotransmitter, onto the excitatory neuron. Mm. And so what he found, the bottom line is, the intermittent fasting enhances the GABA neurotransmission, which means it's enhancing the ability of neural networks to constrain their activity within normal limits and prevent over-excitation. Okay. But you've said a number of things, Mark, which I'm really interested to sort of delve a little bit further in, um, because I do want to come back to the beta amyloid plaques that you mentioned um, in relation to fasting, sleep deprivation, and, and things like that. And also with regards to you know, that glutamate kind of GABA reaction. Can I just ask you, when we're talking about intermittent fasting, but you're talking about alternate day fasting, and this is what you found with that kind of food in, off, in the food animals, off, uh, in the animals. And we'll get, to, we'll get to human studies. Yeah. But I'm kind of giving you a historical perspective on yeah. my own work. So that's how it started. Um, the, for, for I, haven't work. Got to the, I haven't got to the human studies yet. Yeah. I should say a couple more things in the animal studies. Okay, so endurance athletes have low resting heart rate, typically low blood pressure, and they have high heart rate variability, mm. which mm. is the variability in the time interval between individual beats. Mm -hmm. so, so most of your listeners, I guess, are exercise people. I don't know, but... We'll get, yeah, but we have a bunch of people that will be athletes okay. here. So I'll, I'll explain a little more. Okay, so if, Mickey, if your heart rate is 60 and mine's 60, that doesn't mean that each of us has exactly one second between individual beats. Mm. You know, it could be 0.8 seconds, then 1.2, then 0.9, then 1.1. And it turns out high variability is a good thing. What it means is that your heart is more adaptable to changing demands, mm. like exercise. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the reason that you and other endurance athletes have 
uh, low resting heart rate, blood pressure, high heart rate variability, is you have increased activity of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is in the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So your vagus nerve goes to your heart. Those nerves release acetylcholine and it slows down your heart rate. Mm. And then the sympathetic speeds it up. Okay, so we found the same thing with intermittent fasting, at least in rats. Uh, we implanted transmitters so that we could continuously monitor their heart rate and blood pressure. And then we, we put them on intermittent, every other day fasting, daily time-restricted eating, uh, or ad libitum. Then heart rate and blood pressure for both every other day fasting and daily time-restricted feeding went down over a period of a couple weeks and more so by a month and then stayed, stayed at those levels. And then when we switched them back to ad libitum feeding, uh, by about two weeks, <laughs> resting heart rate and blood pressure are back up mm. towards where they were. Which, if you've ever had a in, actually I had injuries over the last couple of years, and my I haven't been getting much aerobic exercise just because I've had three surgeries and all sorts of problems. But my my resting heart rate used to be in the low 50s, and blood pressure like 100 over 60 or 110 over 70. Now my resting heart rate's in the high 60s, and my blood pressure is like between 130 and 140 over 80. And, and that's even though I'm intermittent fasting. Yeah, interesting. So how did that trans, how did your research from the, from the kind of animal models then sort of inform what you were going to do next with the human trials? What happened was I was approached like in the early 2000s by a, a doctor that works with asthma patients down in Louisiana. And he saw our work. Oh, I mentioned. I forgot to mention one thing. The intermittent fasting reduces inflammation too. Yeah. Okay, so asthma is inflammation of the airways. So he saw our published studies in animals, where we found that intermittent fasting reduces inflammation in the brain and in some peripheral organs. And he said, "How about collaborating on a small pilot?" trial of intermittent fasting in asthma patients. And it was a very small study, just 11 patients. They're all overweight with moderate to severe epilepsy. And in that study, we, we used each person as their own control. So we got baseline data, asthma symptoms, uh, airflow in the lungs, blood work. In my lab, we measured markers, markers of oxidative stress and inflammation and blood samples from the patients. And then we had them do eating pattern where every other day they only ate 400 calories. Mm. So that's like very severe calorie restriction every other day. And over two months they lost weight. They lost six to eight percent of their initial body weight. Their asthma symptoms improved, their airflow improved, and then Markers of oxidative stress and inflammation went down, interestingly, between two and four weeks after initiating uh, the intermittent fasting eating pattern. And this two to four weeks 
time frame is something we've seen with, I mentioned it with the heart rate and blood pressure. Yeah. We've seen the same thing with neuroprotection in the brain. Yeah. And interestingly, we say the same thing in terms of people being able to adapt psychologically or neuroendocrinology so that they're no longer hungry and irritable during the time period that they would have previously been eating. Yeah. Matt, can I ask you, so you did a, a, a severe calorie restriction, which is obviously still incorporating some calories. So is that what we would call a fasting mimicking approach? That is that another way that we could determine it? And obviously it sounds like you can get these particular benefits from, from actually consuming something. Would that be the case for the fasting mimicking approach that's now sort of used in the mainstream? Uh, there are no fasts mimicking approaches okay it's that's what I hear the term I hear all the time and so it's it seems it's always associated um, with with having some calories but not all calories let's let's talk about how do we define fasting what is fasting awesome and the way we've been essentially defining it from experimental even clinical standpoint is an intermittent fasting eating pattern is an eating pattern in which there are frequent periods during which energy from the liver, which is glucose, is depleted. Fats are released from fat cells, and then ketones go up. Mm-hmm. With these people, and we measured ketones, we took blood on on the 400-calorie day, and we, I think we took it like in morning. The bottom line is just the 400-calorie day and the ad-lib feeding day and the ketones were up on the 400 calories. 400 calories is not enough to keep your liver full for longer than about six hours, and that's if you're not exercising. Yeah, yeah. It takes at least 10 to 12 hours of taking in no calories, and this is just during normal daily activities, to have this metabolic switch occur. Yeah. You know, any eating pattern, in theory, uh, that while you're getting this fairly frequent metabolic switching can be considered intermittent fasting. Okay, and that metabolic switching is the increase in ketones? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and other things? So if we look at, for example, looking at the turning on or off of certain genes, you know, with different times after the onset of, and this is what I'm telling you now is in animals, Mm. after the onset of fasting, there are a lot of, genes that are turned on, some turned off, beginning when ketones start to go up. Some of those genes may actually be responsive to ketones. Others, it may be related to, for example, changes in activity in the brain and neural networks. For example, we see at about that time period of the metabolic switch, there's increased activity in in neural networks, at least Mm -hmm. in some brain regions. And from an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense. So animals in the wild, they haven't been able to get food for a long time, you know, and they're, they're using fats. It's important for them uh, not to go to sleep. They have to stay awake, alert, and their brains and bodies have to be able to function well. Yeah. Or they wouldn't be successful uh, in getting food and passing on their genes. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of it is revolves around this metabolic switch. But the switching back and forth is important. Because one question I get a lot is, what about ketogenic diets? So what we find is during the 
the fasting. Certain genes are turned on, for example, in code antioxidant enzymes. Some that are important in the early stages are setting in motion mitochondrial biogenesis occurred during the fasting. But the actual increase in number of mitochondria occurs during the feeding period. Ah, so the recovery period. Recovery period. So both the, the challenge, whether it's exercise or fasting, the metabolic challenge, and the recovery are, are important, we think, for optimizing function and health and maybe disease resistance. And yeah. Exercise people know that, right? Yeah, yeah. Your muscles don't get bigger while you're exercising. They get bigger while you're resting. And so the fasting sets in motion things like clearing out garbage and then the feeding and resting then allows cells to grow, get bigger, more endurance in the case of muscle cells. Actually, in the case of nerve cells, form new synapses. Mm -hmm. Intermittent fasting can increase the formation of new synapses between nerve cells. And it's actually harder to do the experiment. We don't have direct evidence, but we have indirect evidence that you know this requires the switching back and forth. Yeah, okay. And so if I go back to your study on uh, the pilot trial with the asthma um, participants, so their symptoms improved with regards to with put, kind of implementing that um, uh, alternate day fasting protocol. How did that then move to what we would now uh, know as the 5-2 approach or 16-8? Do we see the similar sort of benefits when people put into place that time-restricted eating window or that just, say, two days a week? The answer is... Uh, studies haven't been done in asthma patients, but we see similar changes in health indicators in terms of improved glucose regulation, reduced inflammation, reduced oxidative stress. One caveat with the animal studies and the majority of human studies with intermittent fasting is the control group is essentially couch potatoes, or yeah. at least overweight. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I, I mentioned that intermittent fasting can increase lifespan 50% in rats. But that, you got to remember, the control group is animals that have food available all the time and they're not getting much exercise because they're in small cages. So one question that really hasn't been looked at in any detail, there's some work with resistance training, but otherwise is... Um, what about people who have already have a low body weight and are fit? Will they accrue any benefits or can any be detected beyond their already high level of health? And we don't know. In animals, we did a study at looking at endurance. So we took mice, we divided them into four groups, the normal control group, ad libitum, sedentary, then we had uh, every other day fasting sedentary, and then we had every other day fasting daily treadmill training, 45 minutes a day for two months. And each week of treadmill training, we increased either the speed or the incline. Mm -hmm. You know, it's getting harder over the two months. And then at the end of the two months, we did a maximum endurance tests. How long can they stay on the treadmill without giving up? And as you can imagine, the animals that didn't do any treadmill training, 
had poor endurance, yeah. and it didn't matter whether or not they were on intermittent fasting. So you can't do intermittent fasting and increase your endurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without exercising. Yeah. But the mice that were on the every other day fasting during the two months of daily treadmill training had significantly better endurance than the animals that were fed ad libitum during those two months. You probably know more about this than me, but there's quite a bit of interest among endurance athletes about the idea of competing in a ketogenic state, uh, yeah. either through fasting or paying a lot of money for a ketone ester. Mm. So my own personal experiment experience when I was trail running, so I haven't eaten breakfast for like 30 years, so my normal eating pattern has been eat all my food within like, most days it's like six hour time window, mm. six, seven hour time window every day. Some days I'd go into the lab and then I'd forget to take my lunch with me and then I'd stop off at a trail on the way home and go like on an hour trail run. And I found my performance was better when I didn't eat anything that day before I started running. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? The, um, because I was going to ask you whether you felt, well, th this is a different question to actually just what you described, but we talked about how fasting and exercise can provide you know, very similar benefits from that kind of metabolic switch perspective. Do you think it's additive, Mark, that, or it's possible actually to just kind of extend too far? And so if you do a lot of fasting and you do a lot of exercise, that probably you might not allow the enough recovery period to get a lot of those benefits. However, that's different, of course, from what you've just described. It might just be a I, I agree. Uh, it can be overdone, but we don't, there's no, we have no data to say, you know, what might be the optimum, and it could also vary from person to person. Yeah. So, in other words, um, I don't know, we just don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting, and, and I guess particularly in light of athletes doing the ketogenic diet, I think, what we know is that's really super useful for very long events probably you know the ultra endurance athletes but even those ultra yeah. endurance athletes will take in a little bit of carbohydrate in their performance but not necessarily in their training um, or as much in their training and possibly the enthusiasm for a ketogenic a, a complete ketogenic approach for the I'm going to say shorter but the marathon which I know is not short but it's shorter is probably waning a little bit with practitioners anyway that I um, talk to who, who sort of can glean that actually carbohydrate is required because a marathon is different for everyone, but it's nowhere near the same uh, length of time as what an ultra marathon would be, I suppose. Um, Mark, can I ask you a question? And I get this, I see this a lot in the sort of blogosphere and on social media, and people talk about autophagy um, or autophagy, however um, you want to say it, and that one of the benefits from fasting is that increase in kind of cellular clear out. And I never know the answer when someone says, is a 16-8 protocol, so is eating all of my food within an eight-hour window, does that increase autophagy? Or do I have to fast for three days to get those benefits? Like, do we know the answer to that in humans? No, I don't think, no, the answer, to my knowledge, isn't known in humans. You have to have, to really look at autophagy, you have to take out tissue. Yeah. There have been some studies, for example, by 
the Pennington Institute people where they did muscle biopsies and they looked at markers of mitochondrial biogenesis and autophagy, but it was after long-term. Um, most all the studies are, are not looking, you know, how soon does uh, they see evidence for autophagy? It, it's, do they see it after being on intermittent fasting for a month or two months or whatever? So when you see something out there that might say, increase autophagy by doing a time-restricted eating approach, that's really someone's best guess rather than actually based in science that we know. Because also exercise and, as I understand it, coffee also increases, apparently increases autophagy, as I've sort of read in papers. So I guess I'm like, in my head, I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm an endurance athlete, so I train and I do love coffee. So potentially... You know, that's yeah, enough. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, 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 you know, is that enough or is it that I should then consider intermittent fasting? But I guess we just don't know, you know, we just don't know that right now. Well, I, I'm comfortable in saying that fasting is much more powerful stimulator of autophagy than drinking coffee. Yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole phytochemical things interesting. I wrote an article for Scientific American six years ago, and so a lot of the emerging evidence suggests that chemicals in fruits and vegetables, coffee, chocolate, dark chocolate, that are good for our health, the reason they're in the, the plants in the first place, from an evolutionary perspective, is to dissuade insects and us from eating too much of the plants. So they're really natural pesticides. Yes. But herbivores and omnivores, it was to their advantage during evolution to be able to tolerate these chemicals. So a number of means have been devised. Uh, one is that these chemicals have a bitter taste. Caffeine is a really good example. Yeah. If you were to put pure caffeine on your tongue, it's very bitter. The second mechanism is vomiting. Third mechanism, there's enzymes in the liver that rapidly remove these chemicals, uh, so they aren't, they don't stay in your system very long. And then the final one is that individual cells have evolved mechanisms to respond adaptively to these chemicals in ways that help them resist stress. So, for example, one is by upregulating intrinsic antioxidant defenses. Yeah. But, Mickey, I'd like to take a couple minutes and give you kind of a quick history of, of the events that lead to the recent popularization or interest in intermittent fasting. Yes, I've, I've heard you speak on it, and I was hoping that you'd, you'd like to cover it today, so that would be great. Okay, so I mentioned the asthma study. And then uh, about the time we published that paper, uh, Michelle Harvey at University of Manchester, who actually she's a dietitian. She works with women at risk for breast cancer because they're overweight and have family history. And so she came to me and to kind of pick my brain on a, a human study that she could do. And so she saw our asthma paper and we decided that that's not practical every other day eating only 400 calories. So what we decided was 
to have the subjects and her studies eat two days a week, eat only about 600 calories. The other five days eat normally. That, that's now called the 5-2, but when, when we did the studies, we didn't call it that. Yeah, and, and so, what, was it that, what was it that made you think, okay, um, two days a week may be just as, or may also show benefit? What was the decision-making process? Because we knew on those two days that's sufficient to cause metabolic switching for those two days. So the liver stores, energy stores are depleted during those two days. And in and, and those studies, we did it two consecutive days. So the first study was 100 women randomly assigned to either 5-2 intermittent fasting or daily calorie restriction where they ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner and had the calories for each meal were reduced by 25% below their estimated. You know, they did like these two-week food questionnaire yeah. thing. So there were six-month studies. During the six months, both groups of women lost weight, about 8% of their initial body weight. They both lost the same amount of weight because we'd done like this calculation that, okay, 600 calories two days a week, they're normally taking in 24, blah, blah, blah. They're, we calculated their weekly calorie intake would be the same between the two groups. And apparently it was because they lost same amount of weight, but the women on 5-2 intermittent fasting lost more abdominal fat and they had a greater improvement in insulin sensitivity compared to the ones that were counting calories every meal. Yeah, yeah. So we published that and then a producer at the BBC, Michael Mosley, picked up on that and did a documentary. So he came to my lab and Walter Longo and Krista Verde and then he he tried like extended fast and yeah. couldn't do that. But anyway, he he could able to, he was able to do five to intermittent fasting and he lost weight and had a lot of health benefits. And then wrote a book. he wrote a book. He wrote a book, and then all of a sudden, everything took off from there on the internet. It it used it used to be even in 2010, he published or did the documentary like 2013, I think. You know, so at that time, if you Googled intermittent fasting, the top hits would be scientific studies. Yeah. Now, if you Google intermittent fasting, you're hard-pressed to find the scientific studies. Yes. There is a wealth of information, possibly misinformation out there about, you know, intermittent fasting. Now, with Michael Mosley, as I understand it, he shifted the days to be, say, Monday, Thursday, which is sort of a, a, a popular, rather than to be consecutive. Will there be differences in the depletion of glycogen from the liver, Mark? Or do you, do we know? We don't know, I suppose. I don't, there hasn't been a study that compared the two, so I don't know. Mm, and I suppose the, uh, one of the major reasons people jump on board the 5-2 is that from a psychological aspect, having to restrict on just two days a week is possibly, it, it will confer psychological kind of less stress on the diet front for them, I suppose, and still allow them to drop body fat. No, I don't, I don't, not necessarily. I, once someone's adapted to daily time-restricted eating, you know, six or eight-hour time eating window, then it's just part of your daily routine, and you, you don't have to think about what day of the week it is. Oh, interesting. So, in fact, 
actually you're thinking for some people then that having to switch between the two actually could be a bit more stressful well stress is you know you know what I mean like it might take some more consideration and more planning and actually be a bit more effort than just that straight intermittent fasting so how did it move then from that um, the idea of just two days a week at reduced calories to say just an intermittent fasting window of eating all your food within six hours like have you done research and is that where your research moved so right now so I retired from the National Institute on Aging a couple of years ago um, I wrote a book that's at the publisher now that focuses a lot on intermittent fasting that's science and I'm writing a second book uh, it's a neuroscience book and um, I'm teaching at Johns Hopkins and I'm cheerleading clinical investigators uh, on clinical trials of intermittent fasting in various in patients with various diseases. So that's what you do I, I, as a retired professor would be interesting to know how you filled your days because that sounds very busy um, when you were actually not retired. Well, I guess I'm kind of semi-retired. Um, and your and so your your interest now is is in that more kind of time restricted eating, the reduced window of eating. My impression is that's the direction a lot of the clinical studies are going. And of course, your original research was in that neuroendocrinology area and looking at the effects of fasting on the brain. And I know that you've, um, I believe it was last year, you, you published a couple of papers looking at the impact of intermittent fasting on neurodegeneration, or, or maybe it was specifically Alzheimer's. So has your, you, you kicked off by sort of talking about the impact that intermittent fasting could have on beta amyloid plaques, so the buildup of them on the brain and what we know of that in animal models. And um, I've heard a lot about beta amyloid plaques over the years with regards to how they can accrue when someone is sleep deprived, because sleep is, um, you know, when we have that um, sort of flush out or that metabolic clearing. So my question is, if someone is sleep deprived, would intermittent fasting help protect their brain? from the buildup of beta amyloid plaques, or do we not know? We don't know. Um, we do know that being overweight and, and particularly people with insulin resistance are at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, both regular exercise and uh, moderation in energy intake, intermittent fasting, you know, if it can shift those health indicators in a good way, it should reduce one's risk. You know, we're not, I'm not thinking about this as a treatment for someone who's already symptomatic, but rather as a risk reduction strategy. Can I ask you, Mark, I've seen, this is going back to um, the autophagy, I've seen people say that women and men have different rates of autophagy, and fasting for women is not recommended because, or they don't get the same benefits from men. Now, is that someone taking, uh, is, is that correct? Or is that actually not correct, to the best of your knowledge? I'm not, not aware of that. Um, so in women, in overweight women, intermittent fasting, everything to my knowledge that's been published is good. 
um, and pretty much the same as in men. Uh, and there hasn't been much published in normal weight women. And what's really lacking is data from like young people, adolescents, and so on. We did studies in rats where if there are differences in, in males and females with severe calorie restriction, but with every other day fasting, we don't see differences. Yeah. Is, is it that, and I don't know how, how you view it, but there's a lot of mechanistic trials being conducted in animal models to see sort of what's going on. Has that sort of gotten into that kind of public space, mainstream, and, and are people translating too much from that animal model to what potentially happens in humans without um, having that human trial to back it up? Is that what we might be seeing? It could be. We'll see. We, we know in humans, so there's been many, many, many studies now in uh, overweight humans, which uniformly show if they can switch to intermittent fasting eating pattern, their weight goes down, they show improvements in health indicators. What there aren't much of studies in normal weight humans, there are several in young people doing resistance training, normal weight people, showing that daily time restricted eating is conducive to maintaining and building muscle mass. Yeah. So, and then as far as diseases, there's pretty good evidence now that People with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes can benefit a lot from intermittent fasting. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. You know, I mentioned the asthma. Um, we'll see. There's a lot of inflammatory disorders. Um, there's interest in the cardiovascular field based on, you know, what I told you about effects on blood pressure and yeah. heart rate variability. Yeah. Uh, so I think we all, animals, so the normal eating pattern nowadays is, or the usual eating pattern nowadays is abnormal from an evolutionary perspective. And hum, humans prior to the agricultural revolution didn't wake up in the morning and open the refrigerator and eat and, you know, eat as much as they want, don't have to expend energy. So the way I see it is, is analogous to exercise, right? Yeah. Exercise seems to benefit general health, mental health, reduce risk for diseases. I look at intermittent fasting the same way. Yeah. So intermittent fasting is to, I guess we'd say three meals a day plus snacks as exercise is to being sedentary. Yeah, no, I, I seen um, you write about that in your papers and, and I saw one from the I think proceedings of the National or the Nutrition Academy PNAS um, talking yeah, about yeah. how kind of breakfast was was a product of that agricultural kind of revolution and, and just how how it didn't necessarily fit in with our, um, our evolutionary biology requirements. Um, Mark, you mentioned cardiovascular disease and inflammation, and I see intermittent fasting or uh, both time restricted feeding and maybe slightly longer fast as being recommended for someone who might be going through chemotherapy or radiation for uh, cancer. Is that something that we know that we can confidently say could benefit or is it something that we speculate is beneficial or where's the science at with that? There's good reason to believe that may be true. There are clinical trials, quite a few, in progress now to test that. The animal studies have clearly shown that um, 
intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, slow the growth of spontaneous tumors, and as well as slowing the growth of tumors that are implanted into the animal, and also enhances the killing, intermittent fasting enhances the killing of the cancer cells by chemotherapy and radiation. Mm. Cancer cells, not all, but many can types of cancer, the cancer cells rely exclusively on glucose as their energy source and can't use ketones so well. So if you hit them with these toxic drugs or radiation, when their energy levels are low, it's easier to kill them. We know that. Yeah. So many of the trials that are in progress, for example, Michelle Harvey, who did the 5-2 study with, she did a study and is writing up the results now. Uh, she had women that have had breast cancer, have the tumor surgically removed, and then during the the time periods when they're getting chemotherapy, which is five times over a few months or something, have them be on 5-2 intermittent fasting or not. Okay. And then she's mainly looking at this, how do they tolerate the chemotherapy and so on. She's not going to follow up and look at cancer recurrence, but I think down the road you'll see studies that are, you know, looking, do cancers recur or... Yeah. I, I'm, I believe Ruth Pattinson uh, published a trial, I think that who it was, that looked at even kind of a 13-hour fast overnight on a breast cancer survival, as I understand it, and, and showed favorable outcomes for women who even ate all of their food within an 11-hour window and had that 13-hour yeah. fast. Yeah. And you know, the conventional standard of practice, and it makes sense, you know, if, if, if someone's body weight's already very low and they're, like, becoming emaciated, that you want to keep you keep their energy levels up. But many people, perhaps most people with cancers, are actually overweight. Yeah. So that's not a real concern. So, yeah, it, it'll be really interesting to see whether if on some sort of fasting regimen, while they're getting treated, it can improve the outcome. So, yeah. so, Mickey, I've got to go. Um, Mark, thank yeah. you. you yeah. Like, yeah. What, what I've really loved is that, that you've actually you've answered a number of questions which it's been really difficult to find on Google Scholar because, uh, or Google in general because um, you're right, so many of the scientific trials and even in PubMed it's really difficult to discern sort of what we can definitively say about intermittent fasting whereas or what, we, what is just speculation, so. But did you get, you have our New England Journal of Medicine article? I've, I've, I've seen a number of articles. Which one was it? It's a review it's article a review. in the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, the metabolic switch? No, me and a former postdoc of mine wrote a review article on intermittent fasting. So that, you know, we cite a lot of, no, I cite most of the key articles so i can send it i'll send it to you yeah no that would be fabulous mark thank you thank you so okay. much for your time this morning and um enjoy the rest of your day i've really enjoyed this okay thank bye thank you bye 
Toronto team, I hope you really enjoyed that and I was particularly interested in what Mark was talking about with regards to the relationship between intermittent fasting and asthma actually. That was something that I, I hadn't heard prior to my conversation with Mark but look we've got links to some of these publications in the show notes so if you're interested in further understanding these pathways in the body absolutely check them out. And what's on the agenda for next week? Well, I talk to Professor Ethan Weiss, who is another prominent researcher in the intermittent fasting space. And particularly, his research protocols looked at the 16-8 protocol and the impact that that had on type 2 diabetes risk, weight loss, and a whole host of things. And interestingly, his results weren't what we were expecting. And so Ethan and I talk a lot about that and what we can truly take from his research, but also what it doesn't show. So sort of like a bit of an intermittent fasting theme, if you like. Until then though, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, and over on my website, mickeywillardin.com where you can book a one-on-one consultation or you can sign up to one of my meal plans where you get a 28-day meal plan be it for fat loss for an athlete for just if you are after fresh food ideas because you're all out of them you also get my weekly emails you get access to my forum and to pick my brain so that's something which people have been doing as a way to support the podcast and I super appreciate it Another way to support the podcast, of course, is to head on over to your favorite podcast platform and hit subscribe. I would really appreciate that. And share it with your mates if we are talking about things on this podcast that you think that they will be interested in. Until then, team, you have a great day and I'll talk to you next week. See you later.